You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And welcome to the Radioactive Show, produced at the studios of 3CR Melbourne and heard nationally on the Community Radio Network. Hello and welcome to 3CR's Radioactive Show. This show was produced on the lands of Naitahu, Ngāti Māmoe and Waitaha at Ohineho or Littleton in Aotearoa for 3CR, which is located on Rundri Woiwurrung lands. I pay my respects to elders past and present from across these sovereign nations whose enduring right to self-determination continues to this day. The Radioactive Show is distributed across the stolen lands known as Australia on the Community Radio Network and brought to you with the financial support of the Nuclear Free Collective at Friends of the Earth Melbourne. My name is AC. Today's show features two independent scientific experts that are assisting Pacific Island Forum members regarding Japan's plans to discharge nuclear wastewater from Fukushima into the Pacific Ocean in 2023. The scientists were recorded on January 18th as part of a seminar of the Pacific Island Forum. We begin with oceanographer Dr. Ken Busler. I'm an oceanographer. Uh, I study radioactivity in the ocean. My early PhD work, I've been doing this for over 35 years, related mostly to some of the weapons testing fallout that was done in your region. I've been to the Marshall Islands to look at some of the test sites, but measuring more generally radioactivity around this planet, whether it's from nuclear testing, natural sources, things like Chernobyl uh, or Fukushima. So the first thing we really want to bring everyone on board, you hear this word radiation, and basically that's the process caused by these unstable atoms that break down and emit radioactivity, that high energy particles, the radioactive uh, forces that we're concerned about that can cause health effects. And so when that's happening, we often will measure those decay events. It's basically a breakdown, a decay process. Not all elements do this, but many do. And every time that happens, we call that a decay event. And if there's one per second, that's called a Becquerel. So you might see this unit. I'm just saying this up front because, you know, you can't taste or feel or smell or see radioactivity. We have to measure it somehow. And if you've been around... Uh, people using like Geiger counters, right? You hear the click, 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 click. As they get close to the source, you get more clicks. Each of those clicks is a decay event that we're going to call a Becquerel. And we're going to measure that per most of the data per cubic meter of water or per kilogram of fish, how much radiation is in seawater or in seafood, for example, or on the seafloor. And it's also important to know for general audiences uh, that there's many sources of radioactivity in this world we live in. We're all exposed continuously, either through the rocks, the ground, the soil where we live. So we call those naturally occurring radionuclides. Things here in New England where I live, uh, rocks, granite rocks have higher abundance, say of uranium minerals that release things like radon gas. Cosmogenic radioactivity, that's basically caused by high energy particles in the atmosphere that interact with materials to create cosmogenic forms. And actually, tritium is cosmogenically produced. We'll get into that. 
But we're mostly concerned today about human activity, things that happened in this case after the accidents in 2000 at Fukushima Daiichi. So there's many ways, many sources of radioactivity. And so as an oceanographer, I'm challenged with trying to measure what's in the ocean already. So there's a lot of cesium that was released in the 50s and 60s. The biggest circle there, close to a thousand petabecquerels of 137 cesium. Most of that's still with us. That has a half-life of 30 years. So most of that is still in the ocean. Some 60 years later, about 25% of what had been released. Chernobyl, 1986, was smaller, about 10 times smaller. That was mostly a land-based accident. So most of the green is above the waterline there. And then we came along in 2011, something smaller still for this isotope of cesium. Now you'll hear there's many different forms of radioactivity that were released. I've just picked two of them. And one was strontium-90. We're going to hear more about that. One was tritium that you're hearing the most about. In 2011 in Japan, these were much less abundant than cesium. So a lot of attention focused on the radioactive forms of cesium. That's what my lab measured in the ocean, seafood products, others, the Japanese international scientists have looked at that. But we've also looked at what happened with the amount of strontium-90 and tritium was released. And I'll, we'll get into a bit why that's important, but it's not just one form. There's not just cesium and strontium tritium in the ocean. We're often talking about in this radioactive world, I mentioned uranium comes from weathering of rocks, potassium-40. They're much more abundant, but they've always been there. This is what our bodies, we've learned to live with this background radioactivity. So if we talk about background, we're talking about what's in the ocean already. So let's move along. I want to give time here to talk about different sources now. So what happened 2011 if we had this overheating in response to the lack of electricity, explosions due to the release of hydrogen gas, and some of that went right into the atmosphere, the largest fraction. Some through cooling waters at that horrific time went into the ocean. If we move forward another couple and start adding up how much that was, cesium-137, that was one of the more abundant isotopes of concern. You're seeing that number 15 to 20 PBQ petabecquerels in the water, another three to 10. So that's what was going on in that first month. And those are very big numbers, as you saw. Now we continue to study the site, the ongoing release from rivers and groundwater. But look at the units. It's 0.0 something, 0.002. So the amount released today is certainly much smaller than what happened in 2011. Doesn't mean it's zero. We still have concerns, but it's that recovery. What's been going on in the last decade that people like me will study? We have over a thousand tanks, a million tons of water, water that's been used to cool those reactors, even though they've stopped producing electricity. There's a lot of heat there that has to be cooled. A lot of that water builds up because it's groundwater that enters buildings. So every day they're getting several hundred tons of water that gets accumulated, cleaned up. But in those thousand tanks, there's something like one petabecquerel of tritium and plus question mark, there's other isotopes we're going to talk about. So see that number one, it's getting pretty big again, right? We're talking about something that's going to rival potentially what happened in 2011. Yes, I know it's smaller, but it's much bigger than 
what's coming out of rivers on the site today. That was oceanographer Dr. Ken Busler speaking about levels of isotopes that TEPCO are proposing to discharge into the ocean at Fukushima. You're listening to The Radioactive Show. Dr. Busler continues. So, second half of what I get to introduce, what happens? This stuff gets in the ocean, right? We've talked about different isotopes. Well, it all depends. And what that really refers to is the chemistry, the behavior of tritium and cesium and strontium will all vary because of their chemical properties. I'm in a chemistry department. And we're going to talk about four of these very quickly, then the other speakers will expand upon them. But basically, transport with the ocean currents. So when you put tritium or cesium in the ocean, that can move with those ocean currents and be diluted. We also have some of these radioactive elements that accumulate in marine life. And we're going to talk about this accumulation on the seafloor. Why is that of concern or different? And then the final slide from my part will remind us about radioactive decay and what happens to all of these isotopes on very different timescales. So let's go to that next slide, which is a single slide trying to represent over the course now of about eight years. These are pictures of the Pacific Ocean, and I hope you recognize Japan there on the left, the source in 2011, in this case showing you a prediction of cesium-137. This has been verified by the RIT data. On the right side is North America. That island in the middle is Hawaii. And so what it's showing you is the spread of the material from 2011. You can see it's already about halfway across the Pacific. The further away you go, you get lower quantity because it's mixing into that dark blue water that has less cesium. It already had some cesium in it, but nowhere near the levels that were many tens of thousands. In fact, the highest number we saw was 10 million becquerel per cubic meter. So we had a release moving quickly right below that by 2013, a couple of years later. It's still north of the Hawaiian Islands or that green set of islands in the middle, if you can see it. And it's starting to reach British Columbia, Seattle area, the west coast of the U.S. The colors are getting more blue, getting down to much lower levels that were considered of concern. But we could detect in 2013 by 2016 along the coast of North America, water that came from 2011 all the way across the Pacific carrying cesium. And we know if tritium's release would follow something like this pathway. So there are things we know pretty well, but it gets complicated. And not all of that isotope, not every form moves with those ocean currents and dilutes, right? We do have these pathways, whether it's coming from the atmosphere, from the rivers, from the groundwater, that brings it into the local environment or even further afield as that plume moves. Animals in the ocean, take up radioactivity as they eat and as they drink. Remember, even though they're in the ocean, they still need water. And so there's many pathways to get in them. If we look on the next slide at some specific isotopes, we'll start with cesium again, this one that was quite abundant. Its behavior is a lot like potassium. It's an electrolyte. And so it ends up in muscles and organs. When you have sports activity, you drink Gatorade or something to replace electrolytes. That's what cesium is doing when it's in the ocean, fish are swimming around and being exposed. But the biological half-life, how long it would stay in there, 
if they moved into waters that were not contaminated, might be on the order of weeks. That's one reason you have to replenish your electrolytes. You'll see strontium-90 and tritium are quite different. We'll start with strontium-90 on the right. That behaves like calcium. So think of you take calcium supplements for your bones, right? Or as you eat fish and you were to eat their bones, that stays around for years. And so its biological half-life for release is gonna take much longer. And on the left there, we'll contrast with tritium. Tritium is a radioactive form of hydrogen. You can see that H2O formula that we all saw in school, might have forgotten, but basically it behaves a lot like water, not all of the tritium. There's organically bound forms that stay longer than days, but this would go through a fish, through our systems quite quickly. So we have different forms of radionuclides moving to different parts of the food web and staying there for different periods of time. And that's something that complicates the story a little bit. The third complication or the third fate, I think it's not really even a complication. These are known things is that once you release radioactivity, yes, some of it moves with the currents. Yes, some of it gets into the marine life, but a significant fraction becomes associated with that mud, that bottom. There's a core there on the left taken just off the site from Fukushima Daiichi on a cruise I was on. There's some of the benthic marine life on the lower right. And that map, we try to indicate, it might be hard to see in gray there is the Japan and Fukushima as a star, but we've measured the Japanese in particular, the abundance of cesium itself on the seafloor, not in the water. And those areas that are darker red have maybe 10,000 times higher amounts of cesium still today in the seafloor of Japan. Yes, it's going down. I don't have time to show you the details, but I will tell you that marine organisms that live on the seafloor and consume material there can have higher levels of cesium in their bodies because of this exposure. So it's a long-term repository. It's a very different pathway than moving with currents. And so now I'll get into my final punchline here, which is just, and remember that this whole uh, lesson, I guess I'll call it, started with radioactive decay. And for elements like cesium-137, 134, if you release those isotopes in 2011, they have different properties, their half-life, how quickly that breakdown process is. For cesium-137, it's 30 years. So this slide was made eight years after, and we've lost about 15% of the cesium due to its decay, the 137 isotope. 134, released at the same time in about equal amounts, has had four half-lives, eight years, Every two years, 50% goes away, another 50%, another 50%. There's only about 6% left in 2019. That will happen whether it's on the seafloor, moving with ocean currents, or stored on land. We've talked a bit about strontium-90, on pretty similar to cesium-137, 30-year half-life, so most of that's still around. We're going to talk more about tritium in these eight years we would have lost, well, it'd be about 65% left. It hasn't been quite 12 years at that point, but it will decay relatively quick compared to the time frame that they're going to clean up this site, 30, 40, 50, 60 years. If you go 50 years out, 95% of that tritium would be gone, whether it's stored on land or put in the ocean. That's just the process. And early on, people were concerned with iodine. 
because of the cancer risk, 131 for thyroid. And that's a very short half-life of days. So there's essentially no risk from the shorter-lived ones. I think there's one more layer to this, just to reemphasize that remember now, different radioisotopes, different fate in the ocean, some end up in bones or tissue, and they're all decaying at these different rates. So that, yes, you think maybe this is complicated, Ken, but no, it really actually allows us to learn a lot and track these, so know exactly where they're coming from and where to expect them. It's that level of basic knowledge that we should be applying to what happens with this tank waters. That was oceanographer Dr. Ken Busler speaking as an independent scientist advising Pacific Island Forum members on the issue of radioactive wastewater discharge from Fukushima. You're listening to 3CR's Radioactive Show, distributed across so-called Australia on the Community Radio Network. Next up, we hear from physicist Dr. Ferenc Dalnoki Varez. My name is Ferenc. I'm a physicist with many years of background and experience in low concentration radioactivity counting and in particle physics. And I'm going to focus um, in some detail on the data. Um, so I want to emphasize that this accident is not over and this is not normal operations. There's no time limit on an accident. An accident can just continue. And this is important to remember. So normal rules of not normal operations don't apply. Rainwater and groundwater has been flowing into the reactor complex from nearby mountains, and the water becomes highly contaminated with radionuclides. It picks up from flowing through the reactor at 100 to 1,200 meters cubed per day. To give you a sense, 100 meters cubed is 100,000 liters, and that's how much uh, additional water, the the, the burden uh, that TEPCO has to deal with. It's mostly around 180 meters cubed per day. At the high end, the 1,200 meters cubed per day that happens sometimes when there's particularly rainy times, that's one half the size of an Olympic swimming pool. So TEPCO has a very difficult challenge to deal with and manage so much water and has decided to place them into tanks to manage this. In 2016, TEPCO admitted, with many of us suspected, that the water is also not stopped by the the much-hyped ice wall. And TEPCO has no plan to completely stop the flow of groundwater itself. Instead, it continues to deal with the problem by putting contaminated water in tanks. The contaminated water, that's the main focus here, is a particular serious issue because Japan and TEPCO has decided to start disposing, as we discussed, of the contaminated water as soon as the summer. So um, according to TEPCO, there are currently over 1,066 tanks holding contaminated water. To visualize how much water this is, it's the equivalent in total volume of a cube of 110 meters on each side. And the water in the tanks is highly contaminated. Water is treated to remove the 62 different radionuclides using a system known as ALPS or multinuclide uh, removal facility. But in 2014, TEPCO stated that ALPS, so in 2014, TEPCO stated that ALPS will reduce strontium to non-detectable levels which will reduce the risk of leakage and protect the safety of workers. That's a quote by that from them. But then in August 2018, Kyoto News revealed, not TEPCO, that the ALPS system was not working properly. Kyoto News revealed that the water was still highly contaminated in the tanks. TEPCO later admitted that about 66% of the treated water needs to be treated again because the water still has a high background concentration of radionuclides. And we're not just talking about tritium, other isotopes. 
And recently, TEPCO has also backtracked on the criterion for release and now states that the goal is to reduce levels below regulatory limits rather than being non-detectable. So what is in the water? The PIF panel of scientific experts has tried to find answers to this question. And in short, we really don't know. As part of our study, we have had four meetings with TEPCO and Japanese government officials. The IA was an observer at one of the meetings. In addition, some members of the scientific panel, me included, um, were virtual observers at a meeting where IEA Director General uh, Grossi met in person with uh, Pacific Island Forum members in Suva um, in July. An important disclaimer I want to emphasize. The analysis that I will talk about is based on data shared with the Pacific Island Forum. There may be more data that TEPCO has not uh, shared with us. Um, but then I asked the question, why didn't they share it with us? In February 18th, 2022, um, the Pacific Island Forum requested data from TEPCO for uh, data for all 64 radionuclides um, that they said that they would monitor of the water in the tanks. 54 days later, about two almost two months later, we received 19 data files containing sampling data covering 4.3 years. Data needed extensive cleaning, and for some files, the units were not even the same for the same isotope. In addition, from file to file, the radionuclides would be in different order than in other files, which really complicated things. We immediately noticed problems with the data. And I will touch on various deficiencies of the data that the panel has considered to be serious red flags. The panel has found that some of TEPCO's sample extraction has been inadequate, incomplete, and at times inconsistent and even biased. So by incomplete, it really refers to the relevant data as missing from the sample, mean, meaning that important pieces of information were not included in the analysis. Inadequate refers to large gaps in the data, indicating that not enough information was collected to provide a thorough analysis. And when data is inconsistent in these words, it refers to data that contains discrepancies or conflicts uh, within itself. And TEPCO data has shown aspect of all of these in some of their sample extraction um, and analysis. And I will discuss this in 10 uh, main, main points. This is a plot of, of a number of different radionuclides analyzed per sample. And only five times over 4.3 years, and only in five tanks, have more than seven radionuclides plus tritium, carbon-14, or technetium-99 been measured. Seven isotopes are strontium-90, which is bone seeker and critically important, season-134, season we already discussed, season-137, iodine-129, ruthenium-106, antimony-125, and cobalt-60. Those are the seven isotopes that TEPCO uh, tends to monitor most, not the 64 that they assured would be monitored. Not once were all 62 radionuclides measured in one sample in all the data we analyzed in any tank. Individual radionuclide concentrations were inferred using total beta particle counts or alpha counts. So these are just different particles that are using to infer what the uh, amount of concentration is for the different isotopes. But that's not the same as actually measuring it. And that's one important thing I want to emphasize. You noticed second point is that there's large gaps in the data. Look at this. I mean, this is 4.3 years from the one end to the other end. And what you see is complete gaps. And one count, one line doesn't mean just one count because this is over a year. It's something like 400 samples or 700 complete samples. Um, but you see that there's, very, there, there's areas where there's complete sparse data. Data was not, uh, not collected. So about 720 samples were taken, 
but not all of, the, not all of them were analysis of the concentration of individual radionuclides. And that's another point. About one sample for radionuclides were taken every four days over a 4.3 year period. Uh, and we also see long periods of gaps of almost six months where it appears no samples were taken for radionuclides. There may have been samples taken for total beta counts, so different type of particle uh, for inferring concentrations, but not for the individual uh, radionuclides, and that's the concern. So uh, incomplete, inadequate, inconsistent sample extraction. So data is also incomplete because a little over one quarter of the tanks, quarter of the tanks were measured over the full data set. Only a quarter of the tanks, and considering that there's you know, a thousand different tanks. No mention of mixing, which is necessary to have a representative data set, um, origin, and hardly any mention of attention to sludge. Uh, relevant data is, is actually missing from samples, as important as tank ID on a few, making it very difficult to figure out how broadly the 1,000 plus tanks were actually sampled. Other data missing are counting types, type of detector used, um, and so on. Um, so there's lots of information that's missing from these samples. Uh, and they make it difficult to assess what's actually in the tanks. So tanks are often not remeasured, which is another very important point for the same isotope. So temporal variation is hard to know or how representative the samples are of the full volume of the tanks. So um, we also have a concern about the reliability or the consistency of the ALP system. There be, appear to be large variation in the radionuclide uh, ratios of isotopes in tanks in ALP's treated water. Here we see, I'm just kind of showing, uh, this is one of the last graphs I'll show you, <laughs> kind of a snapshot of what a graph looks like, um, of the variation of the strontium-90 to cesium-137 ratio, as an example. And we see that the strontium-90 to cesium-137 ratio in individual tanks varies by more, in a few cases, by more than 16,000. And why that's so strange is that strontium-90 and cesium-137 are supposed to be produced roughly in the same proportion in the fission process. And so the ratio should not vary that much. So this indicates variability in the ALP system. Um, there's also highly questionable data. There are a number of anomalous and questionable data points and measurements in the data set provided uh, to the PIF uh, by TEPCO. For instance, in the insert, you can see very high lower limits on the radionuclide tellurium-127, which simply should not be present. The limit of detection for tellurium-127 was, by take, converting these numbers into something that makes sense, about a billion times more than what would be allowed in terms of risk factor for TEPCO. Uh, so that's you know, just very, very bizarre. Um, the isotope is actually produced through the, through the fission process, and it has a half-life of only nine hours. So it even just should not be present at all. So there's really no point in actually looking for it. Um, so this is a graph of TEPCO's risk factor, and TEPCO deems less than one to be allowable for disposal. It doesn't mean that I agree with this risk factor, but this is the risk factor that TEPCO in Japan uh, uses for different samples when tritium is excluded. So tritium is not included in these, uh, in, in these particular uh, measurements. And we see that for many, many samples, the other radionuclides also contribute to high risk. Another bias is that TEPCO always takes samples at the end of filling rather than devising a system that does it continually or, or, or does random sampling uh, from, uh, from the tanks themselves. 
Also, the samples are only 30 liters from the tank. That's one thousandth of a complete tank. So the sample is not representative and is also uh, biased. So in July, uh, Japan's NRA, a Nuclear Regulatory Authority, authorized construction of the equipment to permit discharge. In September, TEPCO allowed the public to see the construction of the one kilometer pipe into the Pacific Ocean. Apparently, 80 meters has already been complete. I'm sure now it's much uh, longer than this. What is in the tank uh, needs to be established much better than it has been. The ability of the ALP system to handle the varied contents of the tanks, including early tanks with particulate loads and sludges uh, that may be stirred up as the tanks are being emptied, has not been satisfactorily uh, established. And waiting until the time of discharge to do full and proper sampling is not appropriate from a scientific or ecological point of view. That was physicist Dr. Ferenc Dalnoki Ferez. You're listening to The Radioactive Show produced on Naitahu, Ngāti Māmoi and Waitaha lands for 3CR and distributed across so-called Australia on the Community Radio Network. That's it for today. The speakers you heard on the show were part of a public seminar by independent scientific experts assisting Pacific Island Forum members regarding the Fukushima nuclear issue, which took place in January 2023. Much appreciation to the Pacific Islands Forum Secretariat Office for giving permission for us to share this important information with you. I was not able to include all the scientists from the seminar and I encourage you to check out the video, which is on YouTube at Pacific Islands Forum Secretariat. Rad Show podcasts, including this show, can be found at 3cr.org.au forward slash radioactive and I'll include a link to the seminar there. If you want to get in touch with us, please call the 3CR office on 03-9419-8377 or email radioactiveshow.3cr at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and here's to a nuclear-free future. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.